Amen. Thank you, Becca and choir. Man, we've been so blessed to have Dr. Jim Ayler with us these last several months. This is last Sunday. Thank you so much, Jim, choir. You know, I, I'm not usually one to panic, but, uh, you know, last February I was a little panicked when our church went through some changes, and I didn't know what the future would hold, but the Lord has provided time and time again and proven his faithfulness and his goodness to me personally and to our church, and Jim is a big part of that, Mark Edwards also, uh, Scott Hodge, and we had several uh, very able interim music people to fill in, uh, and now the Aaron Legrone, I mean, Aaron, sorry, Aaron Legrone's doing Wednesday night, Aaron Duncan, <laughs> Aaron Duncan era is beginning, we're so glad to have Aaron, and uh, Hannah here with us, his son Sterling is sickly, so uh, pray for Sterling to, to get better soon, and, and Laura's home with him, but they're all moved in, and we are really excited about, uh, Aaron and I were talking about communion, and just, we're on the same page on everything, I'm just really excited to have him leading us in worship now, starting next week, so don't miss it next week, uh, the inaugural Sunday of 2019, and the Aaron Duncan era, and we're just going to call it that, define that, but <laughs> Aaron Duncan. I hope you are having a, a wonderful Christmas. Like I said, it is still Christmas. I hope you've had some time with friends and family, time of rest, hopefully, time of restoration, and able to experience the, the welcoming of Jesus Christ to earth. But th this is the last Sunday of 2019, and we're going to finish our series on waiting on the promise before we get to next week. Uh, we're going to start a whole 2020 vision uh, I know it's just too easy to do. The, uh, probably 75% of churches are doing 2020 vision series in January, and usually I'm not uh, the gimmicky kind of guy, but I think it's going to fit really nicely with where the Lord is leading us. So uh, come back next week as we start this new journey, talking about where we're headed for the future here at Woodmont Baptist Church. We are going to finish this series in the Gospel of Luke, though, today, looking at uh, the, the ways that God has fulfilled his promises primarily by sending his own son, Jesus Christ, to be born uh, here on earth. We began the series by looking at how Zechariah and Elizabeth had been promised a baby and how the Lord was faithful to fulfill that promise. We saw that in Luke chapter 1, and then we moved on to Luke 2. We saw how Simeon, this, this godly man in the temple, had awaited God's fulfillment of his promise that he would not die until he had seen the Messiah with his own two eyes and how he held the baby and said, Nuke Demitis, I can depart now, O God. And then last week we skipped ahead to where Jesus was a 12-year-old boy in the temple and was missing. His parents headed back to Nazareth and realized he was nowhere to be found. And today we're going to skip all the way to the point where Jesus is now 30 years old in Luke chapter 4. This is typically known as the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And to set up our text for today, it's good to know the, the context. Jesus has just been baptized by John the, the Baptist at the Jordan River, and he's just now returning from 40 days in the wilderness where he was tempted by the devil. And now he's ready to fulfill the mission that his Father has given him. He's full of the Holy Spirit. So let's stand in honor of God's word, if you're able to today, as I read our text 
From Luke chapter 4, verses 14 to 30, hear now the word of the Lord. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And then they said, is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did in Capernaum, do here in your own hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath, in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they had heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of town, and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may have a seat. You know, I think it's fascinating that Luke starts out this narrative with the first two verses talking about the wild success of Jesus' inaugural preaching tour. He says that everywhere that Jesus went, he was glorified by all. But Luke doesn't spend any time talking about the, the highlights of the preaching tour that Jesus was on. Instead, he goes right into the disaster that happens in Nazareth, Jesus' own hometown. If I was writing the Bible, and God didn't ask me to do that, but if he did, I would probably focus on the, the, the high points of the success in Galilee. Jesus had built a reputation. He was famous. People were coming from all over to hear him because he was this amazing preacher like no one had ever heard before. I'd focus on that. But Luke wants us to see something else here. The gospel isn't about success in the world's eyes. The good news of Jesus is not immediately attractive and winsome to the masses. The gospel can't be reduced to number of conversions and attendance and giving and how famous the preacher is. The gospel is divisive. The gospel is, is subversive and supplantive. The gospel turns the, the normal ways of the world upside down. So Jesus shows up 
in his hometown as, as something of a celebrity. He's got a little notoriety going for him. And people were proud of their hometown boy, this, this preacher who had become famous in the region. They couldn't wait to hear what their fellow Nazarethan, I don't know if that's how you say that, but their fellow Nazarethite had to say. And usually in a, in a synagogue service of this time period, they would sing psalms, of course, and they would have readings from the Torah and from the prophets, the Nebaim and the Ketuvim, the writings. It's kind of like our service. Probably the authorities of the synagogue would line up the, the readings uh, in advance, and surely one of them heard Jesus was in town and asked him if he would give a reading. And unlike me, who has to plan out my sermons a year in advance uh, and try to get my, my text and titles and series done, Jesus knows exactly what he's going to say. He takes the scroll of Isaiah. He knows exactly what the Lord has asked him to do. And when it's time for him to speak in the service, he stands up in honor of God's word. I think that's interesting. And then look at verse 17. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus takes the scroll and he opens to the end. He opens to Isaiah chapter 61. This is before the chapters were added. And he points to verse 1 and, and verse 2, and he reads those verses, and then he skips to Isaiah 58 and reads verse 6. You know, Isaiah is a, is a massive book. It's a, it's a marvelous, you know, majestical kind of book. It's got 66 long chapters. And it's really divided into three sections. The first 39 chapters are full of judgment about uh, the Assyrian threat that's coming from the north. And then the, the next 15 chapters, 40 through 55, are about comfort, comfort, my people. It's written to God's people as they're in exile in Babylon in the, the sixth century. And then you get to chapters 56 to 66, the last 11 chapters, and it's just worship. It's universal praise about the Messiah who has come, God's suffering servant who has come to redeem God's people and the rest of the world. The nations will see it together. And it's this majestical kind of glorious ending about the messianic age. These are powerful and bold prophecies that Jesus is quoting from the end of Isaiah. Everyone was probably on, on pins and needles as to what he might say about Isaiah 61, but he doesn't wind up some big production. He doesn't roll out the, the dog and pony show. He, he doesn't get everybody cranked up into some kind of evangelistic fervor. Look at verse 20. He rolls up the scroll, gives it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Boom. A nine-word sermon, and he's done. Just sits down and walks away. <laughs> Clearly, he wasn't a Baptist preacher, because nine words isn't enough. He got everybody fired up. He got everyone 
chattering and talking after one little scripture reading, three verses and nine words of commentary. Some of you may be thinking, take the hint, preacher man. <laughs> to you, I would say, I'm not Jesus. I need some more words. So there you go. What is Jesus saying in these nine words? What's his point? What's so explosive about his claim that they would try to kill him for it? Well, he's saying that the messianic age that Isaiah is describing has arrived. It's a bold claim. That third section of prophecy in Isaiah is now coming into the present. And he's specifically addressing four groups of people in these verses from Isaiah. Who is he, he talking to? He says, I've, I've come to proclaim good news to the poor, the captives, the blind, and the oppressed. These are the kinds of people that represent the, the types of persons that Jesus has come to rescue. People in dire situations. People who've been waiting, longing for liberation, for freedom to come. When Jesus says that the Lord has anointed him, he's intentionally using messianic language. The word Messiah literally means anointed one, the one whom God has poured the oil of his special spirit onto for a special purpose. And what has the Lord anointed Jesus for? What has he chosen him for? What has he consecrated and set him apart for? To proclaim good news. Good news, not bad news, good news of redemption and healing and hope. This is the gospel message. The word that's translated to proclaim the good news is actually in Greek, usually translated as preach the gospel. It's the same exact word that the angel Gabriel used in chapter one when he showed up to Zechariah and, and told him, God had sent me to bring you good news that you're gonna have a baby boy and he'll be special prophet, John the Baptist. It's good news that Jesus brings. And for whom is the message of Jesus truly good news? Who hears Jesus's message and says, yes, God, thank you. Well, the gospel is not good news for the self-sufficient. The gospel of Jesus is not good news for the self-made man or the self-made woman. The gospel is only good news for those who truly realize their desperation. And I'm not just referring to material poverty here, although clearly there are some justice implications in this text that are really important. As our church moves forward into next year, I want us to look again at those five purposes of a healthy church, and ministry is one of those, and to see uh, Marcus today and others, uh, Jeff Hammer and, and others who ministered to a homeless man who spent the night outside our church and to, to give him uh, what he needed and to take him where he needed to go was a beautiful thing today. Thank you for being the church uh, to, to those around us. The word for poor that Jesus uses here that he's reading from Isaiah, the word for poor is the exact same word that Jesus uses in the Sermon on the Mount just a few months later when he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
This isn't only about material poverty. This is about spiritual poverty. We who are bankrupt spiritually, we who bring nothing to the table to add to our own spiritual worth, we who realize that in and of ourselves we have nothing spiritually good, we are blessed, we are happy because we know we need a Savior and we know there is a Savior. We realize that we don't have a remote chance of saving ourselves and that's good news because rescue has come in the person of Jesus Christ. Same thing with the captives. The word for captives here implies prisoners of war, people who've been taken hostage or into exile as slaves by an invading force. Nobody in Nazareth on that day was a prisoner of war. They may have be occupied by the Romans, but they weren't captives. They weren't slaves like they were in Babylon or in Egypt. Surely there were present in Nazareth that day, however, those who were in the chains of addiction. Some that day in Jesus' hearing were in bondage to money. Some were in bondage to their own guilt, their own sense of shame. Some were in bondage to their own fallen passions and desires. Some were in bondage to hatred, jealousy, bitterness. The list goes on and on, but it's all sin. It's all our, our fallen flesh that leads us to death and suffering and condemns us. How can we possibly be set free from the prison of sin? Charles Wesley said it well, of 4,000 tongues to sing, he breaks the power of canceled sin, he sets the prisoner free, his blood can make the foulest clean, his blood availed for me, praise God. What about the blind? Who's he talking to here? How can the, the blind receive their sight? Well, you know the story of Saul of Tarsus. In Acts chapter 9, he was on the road to Damascus, and he encountered the risen Christ. And he was struck blind, and he was given a special mission to carry out. He couldn't see physically, but God was teaching him something spiritually. He told Saul, later when Saul's before King Agrippa in Acts 26, he says that Jesus told him, but rise and stand on your feet. I'm sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. The mission of giving sight to the blind was Jesus' mission. And lastly, who are the oppressed? Who is Jesus referring to when he says that he's talking to the oppressed? The root word for oppressed means broken in pieces or crushed. I know several of you here today can relate to that feeling of being crushed. You feel like you're just trying to keep it together because you've been broken in pieces Jesus comes to those who've been overwhelmed by the circumstances of this fallen world. That beautiful song that Kelly sang about the days after Christmas. Wow, thank you, there she is. That was such a, is that a Cal Matthews song? I figured, he's such a good writer. Yeah, incredible song. 
They are, are really hard times. January, depression hits all-time high. How do we walk through the days of January? We, we walk following Christ. We walk remembering that we have the hope and the light of the world. So for those that are so overwhelmed by life that they can't see a way out of it, that's who Jesus is talking about here. That's who are the oppressed, people who can't function because life is so oppressive to them. And to those, he gives freedom. How? He gives them freedom to dwell secure in the Father's hand with the hope of eternity that Jesus shall reign where'er the sun doth its successive journeys run till moon shall wax and wane no more. Freedom from thinking that this world is all there is. Freedom to know the truth about the spiritual reality of this world and beyond. Freedom from having to keep up with the Joneses and freedom from having to compete for what appears to be scarce resources Freedom from having to worship their work, but actually being able to work at work and to worship at worship. Freedom from all the things that this world would try to drag us down with. It's interesting here, too, that in verse 22, the crowd at the synagogue is at first impressed. They're like, my, my, look at this guy. He's pretty impressive. This Nazarethan boy has done well. But immediately, the cynical voices start to take over. Isn't it interesting that in churches, the cynical voices are often the loudest and the most uh, influential? Hey, wait a minute. Isn't this Joseph's kid? We know this guy. He's not really a legitimate rabbi. He has no training. He's a carpenter's son. He's a woodworker. He's a blue-collar nobody. He was a scrawny little kid. I remember him, you know, being in Nashville where I grew up. Every now and then we'll run into somebody. It drives my wife crazy. I remember Nathan when he was this big and he used to say weird things. And, you know, and I'm, okay, okay. That's how Jesus felt in Nazareth. I hope I have, I have no honor in Nashville, my hometown. That's okay. They want to see some tricks. Look at the end of verse 23. What we've heard you did at Capernaum, do here. In your hometown, let's, let's see the show, impress us, come on, wow us, Jesus. And, and notice how they say what we've heard you did, not even what you did. Why? Because they, they don't believe he actually did anything. They don't believe the rumors. They don't believe the hype. They don't believe, certainly, that Jesus could actually be sent from God and actually be God in the flesh, the Messiah. So they just want to see what all the, the conjecture is about here, about who this Jesus guy is. They're looking for some evidence, for some proof of what they've heard. But they didn't see themselves in any of these four groups that Jesus is talking about here. They didn't receive Jesus' message as good news because they don't think they need it. They were only there to put Jesus to the test, to see if Jesus was the real deal or not. But Jesus flips the script. That's what he always does. We want to be in control, and he reminds us, yeah, you're not. I am sovereign overall. I had a rough morning this morning. I got trapped in my own house. I hit the wall at my house with my car, and I just knew that in my prayer time, 
in my office just now that God had something good for us today because Satan seems to come after us like that in these times. Jesus has a way of reminding us we're not in charge. He is. And just like when he was on trial before Pilate at the end of John, as we finished that in November, Jesus reminds the crowd here that he's not the one on trial. They are. Jesus says what they're thinking in verse 24. Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. He knows the truth. It'd be easier for them to believe in a stranger than in somebody they know well. Jesus goes on to illustrate his point by referring to two great Old Testament prophets, Elijah and Elisha. Look at verse 25. In truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. Ouch. What an insult to these good, respectable, synagogue-attending, family-oriented, solid citizens of Nazareth. Elijah didn't go to any of God's chosen people in Israel during the three years of famine, but instead he went to a foreigner, a woman of Zarephath. Remember the story? The woman was gathering sticks so that she could build a fire and bake one last meal for herself and for her son so they could die after they ate what little flour and oil they had left. But look at Elijah's response in 1 Kings Chapter 17, verses 13 and 14. Do not fear, Elijah says. Go and do as you have said. But first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me. And afterward make something for yourself and for your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. The woman was desperately poor, about to die, but she trusted Elijah enough to give her last meal to him instead. And you know the result, she ended up with a never-ending jar of flour and an oil supply that did not run out until the heavens opened up again and, and rain was brought forth on the earth. If this woman had had a barrel full of flour when she met Elijah, maybe she would have been tempted to trust in that barrel to provide for her. But instead, she has nothing, and she has no hope apart from believing what Elijah says to her. Because she had nothing, she believed the word of the Lord. And if that story wasn't bad enough to the good Nazarethans, Jesus goes on to talk about Naaman, the Syrian, pagan foreigner. Look at verse 27. And there were many lepers in Israel at the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them were cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. Remember that story? Naaman was the commander of the Syrian army, and the king of Syria told him, I hear that there's a guy in Israel who can help you. And he goes to Israel, and the, the king of Israel thinks it's a ruse that they're trying to attack him. And instead, Elijah the prophet, Elisha the prophet, commands Naaman to go and bathe seven times in the Jordan River. And Naaman says, why would I do that? And Elisha says, just trust me. And he believes him, and he humbles himself. 
And he goes to the Jordan, he bathes seven times, and he's miraculously healed. The fine, upstanding people of the synagogue in Nazareth had had, had, had enough. They decided it was time to destroy Jesus. To be compared to the poor, to the blind, to the captive, to the oppressed was bad enough. But now to be told that these pagan Gentile outsiders were receiving God's miraculous provision and healing ahead of themselves was just too much. Instead of waiting for the benediction at the end of the service and leaving politely before they attack Jesus, the crowd turns into a lynch mob here. They rush Jesus, they drag him up to the hill to throw him off and destroy him. But of course it wasn't his time yet and he miraculously slips away. In Romans 8, the beautiful chapter of Romans 8, verse 7, the Apostle Paul wrote that the mind set on the flesh is hostile to God. The mind set on flesh is hostile to God. People who are only living for this world and for the things of this world are actually against the ways of God such that they're hostile to them. The gospel, the good news that Jesus came to proclaim subverts the ways of this world. When we realize the truth that we too are actually poor, that we are captive, that we are blind, that we are oppressed apart from Christ, then we can begin to trust that God's ways are actually best, both now and forever. There are still many starving widows in churches today. There are still many lepers who are in need of healing. I'm not just talking about actual lepers. Most of us don't realize that we are poor in spirit, that we are bound by sin, that we are blind to the reality, to the truth, and that we are oppressed by this world. Upright, religious, good-looking, family-focused people become furious at the thought that we need God's grace. In today's devotion, this morning's devotion in Paul David Tripp's book, Come Let Us Adore Him. I hope you've been enjoying that. It's, it's really enhanced my Advent season this December. I hope you've been blessed by that. He mentions how the gospel changes everything, not just so we can go to heaven when we die, but so we can fight the discouraging battle with secret sin now so that we can have a peaceful relationship with our estranged relative that we just saw at Christmas. So that we can stand against the temptations of racism and prejudice. So that we can forge with our spouse a marriage of unity and understanding and love. So that we who are in the trenches of parenting right now can parent our kids with patient wisdom and grace so that we can have not just forgiveness of sins, but new beginnings, truly new beginnings as we enter a new year. So that the hate in our hearts could be replaced with love, so that the anger in our hearts can be replaced with the peace of Christ. Paul David Tripp quotes 2 Peter 1, 3. It was our um, 
VBS verse from last year. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. He's given us all we need for the life here and now and forever. The gospel is only good news to those of us who can acknowledge our current need and future need. Our need not only for salvation, but for everyday grace. I need the gospel of Jesus to get out of bed in the morning. If we can admit our poverty, our blindness, you came to show us that in our blindness, you could give us the reality of what's actually happening in this world. You came to show us that even though we're in bondage to addiction, to sin, to whatever it may be, God, that you come to break those chains. God, you've come to show us that we don't have to be oppressed by the circumstances of this world anymore, but that by your grace, we can walk through each day following you, knowing that you are giving us what we need by your divine power in order to flourish and truly thrive, not as the world would have us to, but as you would have us to. God, I thank you that you are still in the business of changing lives. I pray that you would help us to die to ourselves more and more, that you would help us to not rely on our own self-sufficiency, but that you would enable us to fully lean on your grace that changes us from the inside out. God, we bring nothing to the table today. We have nothing of, of spiritual worth or value, but only what you have cultivated in us by your grace and for your glory. God, we ask that you would continue to grow us into the people that you have created us to be so that we can follow you in the days of winter that are long and cold, so that we can follow you throughout our lives as we raise children, as we grandfather or grandmother, as we seek to be a good neighbor to those around us as we seek to bring hope and healing to our neighbors and to the world. God, we do so only by your grace and for your glory. We pray you continue to bless us and guide us into the new year. We thank you for all the good things you've done in 2019, for the lives that you have changed through the ministry of Woodmont Baptist Church around the world and in this very room. God, we pray all these things in the powerful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. If you're here today and you've never received the free gift of salvation that Jesus offers us by grace through faith, not through anything that we do so that none of us can boast in our own salvation, it's 100% the work of Jesus Christ, I invite you to come forward now during this day and receive him as Lord. Maybe you, you, you're not a part of a church and you realize in 2020, I need to be in a church, I need to be plugged in, I'm going to be in a church where I can be in a small group in a Sunday morning Bible study where I can have friends, where I can encourage one another. If that's you, then I encourage you to, to join Woodmont Baptist Church today. We're going to have a time of response. We're going to sing infant holy, infant lowly. Maybe you want to be baptized in 2020. You say, I want to hit the ground running. I've never been baptized by immersion as a symbol of dying to myself and being raised to new life in Jesus Christ. If that's you, then I invite you to come forward. Maybe you just want to pray with somebody during this time. I would ask Aaron, if you come up here, you can come on up here, and then Trey, if you'll come up here too. If you want to pray with one of these prayer warriors, Anna too, 
If you want to pray with Anna or Trey or Aaron, they'll be here to receive you or myself. Maybe you just want to come kneel at the altar. Whatever it is you need to do during this time, don't leave this place until you've responded to what the Spirit's doing in your heart. Let's stand and sing, infant holy, infant lowly.